Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The good news of Jesus includes his life, death, resurrection, and future return. But what about his ascension? Though often neglected or misunderstood, the ascension is integral to the gospel. In The Ascension of Christ, Patrick Schreiner argues that Jesus' work would be incomplete without his ascent to God's right hand. Not only a key moment in the gospel story, Jesus' ascension was necessary for his present ministry in and through the church. Schreiner argues that Jesus' residence in heaven marks a turning point in his threefold offices of prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, Jesus builds the church and is witness. As priest, he intercedes before the Father. As king, he rules over all. A full appreciation of the ascension is essential for understanding the Bible, Christian doctrine, and Christ's ongoing work in the world. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Patrick Schreiner about his new book, The Ascension of Christ, Recovering a Neglected Doctrine. Dr. Schreiner is Associate Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the author of The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross and Matthew, Disciple, and Scribe. Dr. Schreiner, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jonathan. It's great to be with you again. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, as we get going, why don't, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how you became interested in biblical studies? Yeah, I remember in college um, leading Bible studies and just being really interested in what the text said and finding a lot of growth and health from studying the scriptures. And so I had a lot of questions about the Bible got into church ministry, kept on having more questions about the Bible. So went to seminary and then I kept on having more questions. And so I wanted to go on and get my PhD and I kind of fell in love with doing original language study, um, digging deep into the text. And so just that love of the scriptures was fostered from kind of uh, a beginning stage. And then in seminary, I, I just loved, especially the classes where you like looked at one book and you just dove really deep into that. And so, yeah, when I looked at uh, PhD programs, I just thought I just want to continue to study because I love doing this and this is a ton of fun. So now, thankfully, I get to do this as a full-time job. I get to open up the Bible and teach others. And so really, I've always just loved studying the scriptures and asking good questions of it and writing about it and thinking about it. So it's something that I hope to do for the rest of my life. And I hope that other Christians uh, would, would like to do that as well because the, the scriptures are just such a rich and deep well. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that passion is definitely evident in this book. So let's dive into the material. In the intro, you say that this book is an attempt to give uh, the Christ's ascent a, a better narrative or Christ's ascent a better narrative and theological positioning. Why do you see this as needed for scholarship today? Like what, what has happened to the ascension? 
Yeah, it seems, and I, I don't, maybe it's not in scholarship that it's neglected as much, but in certain Christian, so this is a, a shorter book, like, I don't know, 120 pages or something like that. It's a small book. And so I wrote this a little bit more for people in the church, and at least in the evangelical circles that I run around in, it seems that we speak about Christ's life, his birth, his death, and sometimes we'll get to his resurrection. Hopefully we will. But after the resurrection, it's kind of like we stop speaking about Christ's work, except that he's returning. And so I've just noticed that we kind of just jump over the ascension like, uh, yeah, we're not really sure what to do with that. And so uh, th- this, uh, the, the example that I give is even in low church traditions, um, if you follow any form of the church calendar in terms of celebrating Christmas, you celebrate Good Friday, you celebrate Easter. But Easter ends up being kind of the culminating, like this is the climax of everything. And then it's over. Like you don't think anything about it after that until you get to Christmas again and Good Friday and then Easter. And so um, I think that shows that just, in many church traditions, the ascension is kind of viewed as an afterthought, or uh, I like to say like almost sitting at the end of the couch and being ignored (laughs) in some sense. And so um, what I wanted to do with this book is just argue that the ascension is one of those key plot moments in the biblical narrative. And it's also a key doctrine that we need to recover in the sense of just putting our eyes back on it. It's not that Christians actually have neglected it historically. If you look, one of my things that I looked at was all the creeds, the early creeds, all of them, if they go through Christ's kind of work, have a separate line about Christ's ascension. So it's not that the church as a whole has neglected, but maybe we're coming into an age where um, Christ's death is so debated in terms of what happens. So we put our focus there or Christ's resurrection is debated because of the historicity of it. And then the ascension again, just kind of sits at the side and we don't talk about it, but I think we need to put our eyes back on the ascension because it not only authorizes and endorses Jesus's work, it's not just a a rubber stamp upon the resurrection, it's an event in its own right, but actually that it continues Christ's work in the world. So uh, one scholar put it this way, sometimes we like to think about what Christ did and what he will do, but we don't always speak about what Christ is doing now. And looking at the ascension actually clarifies, and it clarified for me as I wrote it, what Christ is doing now. And we believe Christ is still active, sitting on the throne, on the on the throne at the right hand of the Father doesn't mean he's inactive. It actually means he's I think even more active as the ruler of heaven and earth. His activity upon the earth is now different in one sense because he's not here bodily, but he's still active. And that's that's kind of what I want to explore. So in terms of scholarship, I actually haven't spent a lot of time thinking about what that would do for scholarship. But I, I would say just off the cuff here that we we want we want to focus on the exaltation of Jesus in scholarship because that's what the New Testament focuses on. Not that that comes through suffering, so not at the expense of suffering, but that what we confess as Christians, the reason the New Testament exists is because Jesus is Messiah and Lord. So if there's any central theological claim around which we need to build our theology, it seems to be, especially from a Jewish standpoint and in terms of the, of the cultural context of the Bible, that Jesus is this messianic figure that was promised from so long ago. And that is because he lived, he died, he, he rose from the grave, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So 
for scholars, I think just just keeping that central in our mind is is important. And then I'd also say theologically, um, the if to focus on the ascension, this is kind of my last chapter, but and, and maybe we'll get to this. But to focus on the ascension doesn't mean you denigrate the other doctrines or the other events in Christ's life. I'm not trying to say that we need to focus on the ascension. Let's forget about the resurrection. Let's forget about his life. No, no. What I'm trying to say is actually looking at the ascension clarifies and lifts up these other doctrines. So it's almost like as you, um, probably a bad example, but as you fill up a bathtub and all of the toys begin to float together, it's as you lift up this one, the others are kind of drawn up with it. And so uh, what I hope is that actually focusing on the ascension will give us a better view of the incarnation because Christ still has a human body. And so it's affirming the goodness of the incarnation. Uh, Christ's ascension also relates to his exaltation in terms of it's confirming that he will come again, as the angels say in Acts 1, 9 through 11, why do you stare, stand here staring up into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you will come again in the same way. So as we meditate on the ascension, we, we recognize just as he left through the clouds, he will come again through the clouds. So um, theologically and then kind of in biblical studies, I would just say this is uh, one of those key moments in the biblical narrative that needs uh, better positioning in, in terms of not neglecting it. Yeah, so in order to do that positioning, you um, really just lay out these these three kind of major chapters talking about Jesus's role as prophet, priest, and king. So starting with Jesus's role as prophet, um, you, you, you look into this theme. And so I was just curious, how do you think Jesus's role as a prophet relates to the ascension? Yeah, that, that's the first chapter. And I think many people would be surprised that I began there because um, personally, I think the easier ones are priest and kingship. And I actually found that to be true. So for all the um, reviewers out there, if you want to review my book and pick on one chapter, this giving you a freebie here, this is probably the chapter to pick on. Um, how does he, as I argued, it doesn't just authorize and endorse his work, but it continues his work. So if Jesus was a prophet upon the earth, how is he continuing to be a prophet as after he ascended, as he is in heaven? Well, to answer that question, I thought I need to go back and ask, what is a prophet? What do they do? And so the three things, we could say more, certainly, but the three things that I identified uh, that prophets do is, number one, they proclaim God's word. Number two, they perform signs and wonders. So you just want to think back to Old Testament prophets, especially here, Elijah, Elisha, etc., Moses, right? And number three, they're empowered with his spirit. And I think it's really clear when you read the gospels that Jesus is portrayed as a prophet upon the earth. Actually, as he goes to different towns, they say, oh, it's the prophet Jesus, basically. And and uh, Jesus asks questions. He affirms even that he's a prophet. So it's very clear that on the earth, he is a prophet. But I think it's also this the case that he continues to be a, a prophet after his Ascent. So how does he do that? Well, he continues to proclaim his word and actually confirm his word because we can now look back on his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So in the, in the same way, God's word actually is more, this is Second Peter 1, the word of God is more fully confirmed now that he has ascended. And so he actually is proclaiming God's word in a unique sense now that he has ascended to the right hand. 
he also is the one who empowers us with his spirit. So this is where the pro- the prophetic chapter is a little different in terms of I'm always pitching it to the church. We proclaim God's word now too as he empowers us. He gives us his spirit and Acts makes that very clear connection between the ascension and the outpouring of the spirit. And then according to John, we perform signs and wonders that are even greater than Jesus's after the ascension because we are empowered with the spirit. And so Jesus continues I'm probably not being very clear here, but Jesus continues to act as the prophet primarily through his body. He is the head. The church is his body through his church, which is a little bit different than how he continues to work as priest and king. And so that's that's the, the difference here, but that he empowers his followers to actually build his church. So one of the key verses for me in this was that text that I just referenced was John, I think it's John 14, 12, where he says the followers of Jesus will do even greater works than Jesus did. And I've always struggled over that. But I think what he's saying here is the church can more expansively spread Christ's work because they are more widely dispersed. If we have as the church the spirit of Jesus residing in us, we can actually spread out to different continents that Jesus did not travel to in his human body while he was upon the earth. And so we do greater works in in terms of more abundant works, works that are happening in China, in South America, in Africa, in North America, in in all these different places. So um, his prophetic work does not cease at the ascension. It actually, what I like to say is it kicks into a higher gear as he gives all of his followers the same spirit that he had. And so now we go out as the church and we proclaim his word. We perform signs and wonders and we are empowered with this spirit. So that that's a long answer to your question. Yeah. And I, I think that is very helpful in understanding Jesus's role as a prophet. So then next you look at Jesus's role as a priest, as the high priest. And you say that the ascension quote marks a shift in Christ's priestly work. That was right at the end of the chapter. So in your mind, what changes about Jesus's role as a priest because of the ascension? How, how is that uh, able to um, shift Christ's priestly work? Right. So again, if, if Jesus, and this is debated, but I think Jesus is presented as a priest upon the earth. And, and there are books that are, are dealing with this right now, but uh, you could look at Nicholas Perrin's book, Jesus the Priest. Actually, I use that a lot for this study and it was really helpful. Um, but what, what, are, what is true about priests? Again, I want to start with what's true about priests in the Old Testament and see that Jesus is a priest upon the earth and then move towards what happens, what shifts at the ascension. So the three things, again, that I identified with a priest, more could be said, but they're chosen. This is Hebrews 5.1, actually. They're chosen from among humanity. Jesus was chosen from among humanity. They acted on behalf, they act on behalf of humanity, and then they offer gifts and sacrifices to God. So basically, I mean, you, you could go to more places than Hebrews, but if you look at Hebrews, what shifts at the ascension is that on the earth, Jesus had an earthly body, but now he has a spiritual body. And so he has a better body through which he interacts as our high priest. Uh, on the earth, he interacted in the earthly tent in some ways, and now he's interceding or presenting his blood in a heavenly tent. So it's a better place. And then I would argue that com- in comparison with the Old Testament sacrifices, according to Hebrews, 
uh, the sacrifice that they made, they were, they were burdened by sin and they sacrificed continually, but he sacrifices once and for all and he presents his blood. And I think many people stop there, but I, I, I actually want to continue what he does. Priests not only offered sacrifices, but priests also interceded and then they came out and they blessed their people. And so what Jesus does, the shift at the ascension, is that he now intercedes at the right hand of the Father. He's not in this uh, earthly tent interceding for his people where the footstool of Yahweh is. He is actually at the right hand of the Father presenting our requests and requesting for us before the Father, which is a better position than any Old Testament priest or any earthly priest that has ever been. So he is that better priest after the ascension. And then he also blesses his people. And this goes back to bestowing the spirit. So um, you think back to numbers as um, the priest would come out and they would bless the people they would present, they would uh, give favor to them. Now, after the ascension, Jesus blesses his people, and that he bestows the Spirit, and he bestows peace upon them. He says, "My peace I give to you." And so now, the, the argument of Hebrews is that now he's acting as a better priest because he's in the true tent. He has a better body. And he has a better sacrifice. He has a better intercession. He has a better blessing. So that that just really confirms that the ascension doesn't cease his work. It actually kicks it into a higher and better gear, and we can worship him as the great high priest. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So that is how the ascension uh, relates to Jesus's role as a priest. And then last, you say uh, that Christ's kingship was not complete until he rose and went before the Father in heaven. Maybe could you explain for our audience why the ascension is, is so crucial to Jesus's kingship? Yeah, I mean, there is a sense in which he's designated as the king in his ministry, but he's not um, coronated as king. He's not installed as the king until his ascension. So this is, I think it all comes, uh, I, I view kingship as kind of the chief metaphor, um, which all of these coincide with. So if, if there were um, a climax in, in, to my book, it's, it's in the kingship chapter. And so while we can affirm that he's chosen, he's designated as the king upon the earth, that he's even declared, uh, even ironically, as the king of the Jews upon the earth, there's a real sense in which he's installed as the king in, in his ascension. And so there's a key text. Uh, if you just look at Matthew, I think it's 2664, Jesus is on trial. Um, he says, uh, to the high priest, so he asks him, are you Christ, the son of God? And Jesus says, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see, future tense, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's a very clear allusion to Daniel 7. And what he's saying is, there, what you're going to do to me, so it's all, it's all tied together with the death and the resurrection and ascension, is going to actually install me as the king of heaven and earth. And you go back to Daniel 7, it's the son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven before the ancient of days, and then he is installed as the king of heaven and earth. So 
at least in scholarship and in the church, I like to push people to see Jesus as the king of the Jews upon the earth and that there is a unique sense in which he becomes king of heaven and earth and he is installed as the king of heaven and earth at his ascension and that he wasn't this that he it, his ministry wasn't confirmed in the same way before does if if that makes sense so the installation of the king the coronation of the king is one of the key points the other thing kind of implications of this for his kingship is that he uniquely conquers his enemies and i would say particularly the spiritual forces at his ascension of the of of the king so uh you think of a text like colossians 2:15 it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now, the context is speaking about uh, the cross, but I think what Paul is likely doing is he's thinking of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension all together, that he actually triumphs over them in that threefold act of suffering, resurrection, and ascension because the ascension confirms the victory of the cross. The ascension uh, brings our eyes back to the cross. That's similar with the resurrection. You also have a text like Ephesians 1, is it 19 and following, where he speaks about um, Christ when he raised him from the dead, the father did, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And then here's the key text, Ephesians 1, 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. So what the biblical author, they, they have a supernatural worldview. There are demons, there are spiritual beings, there's the Satan, there's all these heavenly hosts, there's lowercase g, gods, Elohim, and that what happened at the ascension, the cross, resurrection, and ascension, is that he has been installed over all of these enemies, all over all of these spiritual beings. So that's why I like to say he's not over king over the whole earth. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's over king over the Jews and Gentiles. And you need to pick up that spiritual warfare fair piece that he's, he's actually conquered all spiritual forces, which installs him then as the ruler over his church and over the whole universe, the world. And so... Acts makes this really clear. It, it, it just it gives nice lenses to how to read the Bible because what happens is Jesus doesn't officially send his disciples, his apostles, into the whole world until well, he gives them the commission right before his ascension, but they are supposed to go out after his ascension and after they receive the spirit. Why, you need to ask yourself, why does he not send them out before? You have in Matthew, he just sends them to the lost sheep of Israel. Why not send them to everyone beforehand? Because he has to be installed as the ruler over all the principalities and powers over the whole earth. And then he can say, the whole earth is mine. The whole world is mine. So as they go out into the nations, which are controlled, bringing in some Mike Kaiser here, but controlled by other gods, other Elohim, he's now showing that he is uh, connected. He is one with the most high God. And therefore, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles because he can go and declare there is a new king that has been installed above the principalities and powers. You don't need to worship those gods. You need to worship Yahweh, the one true God who has manifested himself in the man, uh, Jesus Christ. And so everything seems to come together in this kingship theme, but maybe you want to ask more questions about that. 
Well, I, I think that is great. That's a that's a great way to I think whet uh, our audience's appetite for these themes. And I think you did such a great job in uh, a little amount of space, but with a big impact. And um, yeah, I just I encourage our readers to pick up this book and to learn more about the ascension of Jesus Christ. And so, but before we go, Dr. Schreiner, would you mind maybe sharing with us about your future projects and where you're going from here? Yeah, I mean because this book is on the Ascension. My mind has been in Acts. And so I'm working on a ton of projects in Acts. So I have a commentary with Acts coming out maybe next summer. Um, I have a biblical theology of Acts kind of identifying key themes coming out. Uh, who knows when, but I'm, I'm kind of finishing the first draft. And so, and then I have an overview of the New Testament that's also going to be coming out. Um, maybe all my books will be coming out next summer. We'll see. Hopefully COVID will be over by next summer and all my books will come out. We'll see. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Schreiner, for joining us today. Uh, we are, we're excited about this book. And yeah, as you continue to write, we will uh, continue to have you on. These are, these are great additions to scholarship. So, um, well, for those who are listening, you have been listening to uh, New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. And until next time, take up and read. <laughs>